0: I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's roar. Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? Roar. The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym. The acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it. A hidden power inside of us. It is a fire that is often suppressed by fear. This is the month of March and we all know what that means, right? It's Women's History Month. A month of celebrating strong, resilient trailblazers everywhere. For as long as there have been mountains to scale, There have been women who are trailblazers, resilient, creative, innovative women who've confronted challenges head-on and created a better world for all of us, whether they are inventors, explorers, scientists, executives, teachers, lawyers, you name it. It takes bravery and persistence to explore new territory and blaze new trails, literally and figuratively. And my guest today possesses both bravery and persistence. For Dr. Renee Horton, it all started with a passion and the initial desire to explore space as an astronaut. Today, her impressive resume includes being an author, international speaker, founder of Unapologetically Being Incorporated, a nonprofit for advocacy and mentoring in STEM, and she's an entrepreneur. Dr. Renee Horton earned her bachelor's degree in electrical engineering from Louisiana State University, LSU, in 2002. She made history by being the first, and to this day, the only African-American to achieve a PhD in material science with a concentration in physics from the University of Alabama. Yes, you guessed it. She's a rocket scientist. Today, she works as a space launch system quality engineer in the NASA Residential Management Office at the Michaud Assembly Facility in New Orleans helping to build the most powerful rockets in the history of humankind in anticipation of the 2024 Artemis mission and whatever comes after that. I am so thrilled to have her here today. So let's welcome this trailblazer to the show. Welcome, Dr. Renee. Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate it. I have been so jazzed about the opportunity to talk to you. I mean, this is Women's History Month. We're celebrating trailblazing women who are just taking the world by storm, and you've been doing that from a very early age, and so I'm excited to share you with my audience and then allow you to kind of let us know a little bit about your background. So to kind of kick us off, tell us a bit
1: about your background,
0: where you're from, and maybe who were some of your biggest influences growing
1: up? So I am born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I am truly a Louisiana girl. Um oh. Deep down in my soul, um, I was just having a conversation with my girlfriend and she was like, you should go work in D.C. And I said, I don't like D.C. I rode the train in D.C. and people don't speak. And she said, honey, people don't speak to each other on the train. And I said, that's why I can't live in D.C. I'm a Southerner. we speak to everybody. So exactly. born, and raised, <laughs> no, born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Grew up originally in Mayfair, which is uh, which was a middle class neighborhood black neighborhood. (laughs) Now that I think about it, you know, you don't, you, you don't have the perspective of those things growing up, but thinking back on them, it was really, you know, now that I think about it, it was two parent homes where parents worked and kids took vacations and not everybody was like that, but the majority of the neighborhood was. I have always been one of only one or the only in going to school. They bust us into a white school and I was always one of two or, or the only one. Um, So that was my norm. And I did not know that that was not normal until later. And you don't know that perspective until later in life um, as well. And growing up though, I had a very strong black teacher in fifth grade, Miss Florida, and um, she ain't take no stuff. Right. (laughs) (laughs) She was a huge influence on me because she was the she was one of those people that spoke out even in school about the transgressions and the the inequities of blacks being educated, even though we were in a white school, right? She wanted us to be treated fairly and um equal. And I didn't really understand that then. I understand it now. So I'm truly grateful for how strict she was on us. And me and my brother had her in school. And then my parents divorced when I was 12 or 13-ish, somewhere around there. And we went from being a two parent home to single parent home to barely living above the poverty line. I transferred, my gifted program was moved into an all-Black school, so I went from being one of two to one of 200, which was a very different perspective, but Black kids are mean kids. Um
0: <laughs> when you're so, up. When you, so when you transitioned you said they weren't very welcoming at the time they wanted you to warm
1: up and prove yourself maybe huh? <laughs> yeah like I like I belong there and I was thinking I'm smarter than you and <laughs> hey, nothing else I'll outscore you and they were like, yeah, but you need to outrun us.
0: Okay. <laughs> I know what that uh, looks like. <laughs> yeah,
1: so I definitely learned a um a very, very different dynamic going in. I was an avid reader growing up. And so growing up, um, I knew who Mae Jemison was. Yes. I knew who Buford was. I was really into space. Um, I got a telescope when I turned nine from my dad. And um, well, I, I'm gonna say from my parents, but it's usually my dad was the big pusher he really like lit that fire for exploration and experimentation and everything else, right? And he really pushed other like Black professionals into our life for us. And so growing up, those people that I looked up to who really shaped my life as a young person were people like my aunt, who was going to school and had gotten her degree in STEM, and my uncle, who's also in computer programming, and another uncle who's in pharmacy. And so a lot of those people, yeah, a lot of those people I looked up to were like right in my family, just simply because they were there. My uncle in the Air Force had the biggest impact on me. He put together his own television. And I remember as a child that if he could do that, I could do anything.
0: Wow. I love that. I love that. I mean, it sounds like um, a very rich upbringing, very diverse, right? I mean, Sounds like you had a great foundation with your parents who really invested in you and your siblings and then uh, a teacher. A teacher is always a difference maker in our lives, right? Really just kind of showing us who we can be and how we can and push ourselves to achieve more. And then just at your, your parents, just seeing that spark of STEM in your eyes and just, uh, I would say, encouraging that. And getting your first telescope—I mean, for me, it was my first computer. For you, it was your first telescope, right? It was those things that really enabled us to be creative and 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 learn new skills, right? And really explore a whole new world. To your point, that telescope opened up a whole new world for you.
1: Yeah, my and and I can honestly say I, I think back on my childhood. My childhood, and I was having this conversation with my father, who currently lives with me, about the good and the bad. Right there, there, there's good and there's bad. Growing up, and I tell him all the time that. Those good things, the things that were rich in our lives were those things that they were able to give us that were, I'm not going to say they didn't cost any money because they did, but it was those things, the experiences that they were actually able to give us that really outweighed all the other bad stuff that happened growing up.
0: I love that you talked about the Air Force. I have a passion for the Air Force. And then Dr. Macy Jameson, she was definitely an inspiration for me growing up. And so it sounds like, to your point, at a very early age, you um, were getting connected to space,
1: to exploration, to thinking beyond this universe, so to speak. Wanting to be an astronaut, you, you know, my, and like I said, my dad really fostered that. We had two sets of encyclopedias in our house. So I was always being able to explore and dig and read. And, you know, we would ask a question and he'd say, go look it up. And at first I was like, well, he must not know. <laughs> but I, I really learned to understand that go look it up, man, that I was the one doing doing the research, which definitely helped me um, down the road. And being able to see women like Mae Jemison just kind of blew me away that she could be doing something that I was only dreaming about.
0: I love it. I love it. So I'm going to take a step back and I want to come back to to Mae Jamison and and then the the astronaut piece. But, you know, you talked about your rich experiences growing up, the diverse experiences you had based on your family being in STEM. You know, when you think back on those experiences growing up, what do you think really um, helped shape you to be who you are and really kind of helped you, I would say, define your roar, so to speak? Anything come to mind there?
1: There are a few incidents that actually come to mind. When I remember in the Air Force ROTC, the the colonel, when we first found out that I was hearing impaired and that I wouldn't be able to really go in as an officer, I remember this man who really didn't know me from anybody else. I was just one of his students, but he liked me and he he tried to fight to get me to get a waiver. And that would have limited the jobs that I would have had. And of course, I wouldn't have been able to go to combat and that kind of stuff. But I remember him fighting for me. And then it just didn't happen. Right. And it was one of those moments too that even though I kind of gave up on my dream and then gave up on and kind of got misdirected for a while, I still remember him wanting to fight for me. So that was really big for me growing up. And then one of the other moments was my father. Was diagnosed with sarcardosis when we were young. And um, he worked in a plant. He worked second shift in a plant and to give us the life that we had. And then when he got ill, they gave him the option of them doing the surgery or doing his medical care and retraining him. And he chose the medical care and retraining him. And my father went back to college and was in college when I graduated from high school. Um, and so that type of determination in itself is what helped me define me and and my push. But those things really didn't circulate till later in life for me, Um, just simply because I was still struggling with my colorism and all that other good stuff that happens in the South with little Black girls, you know. Got it, got it. Yeah, and you're, you know,
0: you saw great examples: tenacity not being defined by your challenges or circumstances and finding a way to persevere. Through that. And it sounds like you carried those lessons through throughout your life. And so I want to just jump back to the rocket science. I just so love that. And to your point, right? So, with Katherine Johnson having been at NASA, um, one of the first computers, so to speak, and then you having, you are currently at NASA. I'd be curious to know how did you come to know her? Was it when you joined NASA or did you come to know her prior to your, t- your time at NASA?
1: No, afterwards. I started, I was out of school for 10 years, went back to school with the kids got my undergraduate, and then went on to get my PhD. And when the book was written, it you know, it was such a big story. You know, everybody's talking about it because everybody's kind of confused. Like, how do you hide this history away, you know, without it ever getting out, right? And I had the, they brought her granddaughter to Michu Assembly Facility is where I work in New Orleans. And they brought her granddaughter to the Rocket Factory. And her class came. And so somebody had the bright idea. It should be Renee who should talk to these kids. And so I walk in, I'm very nonchalant, like, oh, okay, this is her granddaughter. And her granddaughter and I actually hit it off, like, really big. And we did a couple of movie premieres together because I was invited to talk at several of uh, the openings before Hidden Figures. And her and I became really good friends and then they were going to bestow an honorary degree on her grandmother. And she asked me if I wanted to fly out um, and be a part of that. And so that is how I actually was able to actually meet her and have personal time, was able to sit and talk with her for two hours. Just very personal and upfront. Would she have shaped my life, her story? It definitely would have because being different in your own space and in your own skin and being able to be in a place and be who you were is huge. I'm a big uh, component of that. And so having known her story as a younger girl would have made a tremendous difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, piggybacking
0: on that, I mean, we talk a lot about on this podcast in general about imposter syndrome in terms of, you know, being the only walking into spaces and places where we're not, you know, uh, typically seen being the first, as I said, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we face that imposter syndrome, we begin to look at the stories that we tell ourselves that in some ways, shape and, you know, shape, form or fashion can hold us back and really keep us from achieving what we all know we're capable of. As someone, as you said, who who you know, you've you been in the first in a lot of different instances, the first and the only, talk a little bit about if you've ever encountered imposter syndrome. And if so, how did you gain the confidence to overcome it? Well, even when we started this
1: conversation, you said, how did I want to be referenced? <laughs> and, and it was still without Renee. <laughs> it was just Renee, right? When I first graduated, I really didn't seem like a doctor. I don't know what that was supposed to be, because I knew some, right, but I still didn't know them in a, um, not all of them in a personal setting. So I really wasn't sure, or, or the ones that I did know were very different from me personally. I hold true to my roots, and a lot of people are just different. I always say, well, man, they really bougie, <laughs> or this, but they're just, very, just, just different than who I am, right? So when I first became, when I first, I, you know, I wouldn't even tell people that I had it. And then, of course, I got hired with my first job, and then everybody knew it, and everybody was like, "Dr. Horton, Dr. Horton, Dr. Horton." I was like, "Man, do they have to, you know, do that?" (laughs) You know, in my brain, I was thinking they think I know everything. I don't know everything, (laughs) you know. And then I would walk into meetings, and I would spend all of this time studying before, right. Like the meeting, I would know what the meeting was. I would know the agenda. I would I would literally know everything that was going to happen. And then I would be looking up all of this stuff because I wanted to be the person who knew. Because I didn't want anybody else second guessing that I was, you know, that I had earned this degree. Absolutely. Now, the kicker is, it was almost like one day a light bulb went off. I was looking at something that had happened in the news about the University of Alabama dealing with racism And it hit me really hard, like a ton of bricks, right? Like, I must be a doctor because that white institution would not have just given no little black girl (laughs) no PhD. You know, and it hit me (laughs) like that. Yep. I had to have earned it, which meant that I had to, you know, possess the knowledge and the intelligence to be what I am now. And so when that hit me like that people would laugh at me and I started that was became part of my little my little skit what I do when I give them my talks, right? Like yeah, I must be a doctor. And so they were like so that's how you overcame imposter syndrome. I was like I had to actually realize that my my insecurities had less to do with my intellect and more to do with my hearing. And me me truly accepting that. And so once I was able to kind of put things in the right compartments and accept them for what they are, you know, about doing that emotional work, right? Being able to put those things in the right place, I was able to truly move past that. Um, There are times that I walk in a room and I know I'm the dumbest person in the room because it's not my topic. It's not my subject, right? But if you give me my subject, I can run circles around
0: you. I love it. I love it. Wow. Love how you... how how that aha moment just sunk in. You're like, absolutely. They're, you know, they're not saying come one, come all, stand in line. We're giving out PhDs. Clearly you have earned that, right? So step into that. I love that. (laughs) Um, You talked a little bit about a hearing impairment, if I'm phrasing that properly. And, you know, as a, you know, right now there's a, a, a lot of focus for good reasons around accessibility or, or, or folks who might be differently abled. And so as a differently abled, if I'm okay to use that term, an African-American woman, I mean, you stand at the intersection of three major gaps in equity. You know, what advice would you give others who who may have a steeper hill to climb just to get a seat
1: at that table? Uh, the seat at the table is a beautiful place. <laughs> so it's definitely worth climbing, overcoming, swimming through, rolling through walking through having somebody else carry you i've been able to do more with my voice and my platform willingly and and uh being here than i than i would have if i had not decided to be here to
0: just kind of walk in your entire truth is i think it's kind of how i see it right and kind of own you know the difference for lack of a better term
1: not even being able to walk in my entire truth because even when i didn't totally grasp or, or, or uh, walk in the disability so much, being able to walk in the fact that I wanted to be at the table and I understood I had a right to be at the table. It was once I got the invitations inside that I was able to, you know, own the rest of it. I shrunk away for a long time uh, from my disability, longer than anything else, Then maybe I should have. Because I didn't want people to think that because I got an accommodation, that is, it gave me a leg up over other people. Got
0: it. Got it. Got it. I'd love to hear your perspective. I mean, what I hear you say is for those, you know, we talk about a seat at the table. I always say, you know, own the space that you occupy, right? You know, you've earned a seat at the table. And so use your voice when you get there. You know, how did you continue to pursue your dreams and not succumb to maybe, any of the negative circumstances that may have been around you, not just from a differently able perspective, but just, I mean, I'm sure there's probably not very many African-American PhD women rocket scientists, or maybe there's more today and that's a good thing, but how have you navigated um, some of the challenges that you might've faced along the way to to be where you are today? I
1: have an amazing network or tribe, I call them my tribe, right? Because there are plenty of times that um, I want to give up and walk away. Um, I've wanted to walk away from this for at least three years now to just go in a space that I don't have to fight so much because I'm tired. I'm tired of the fighting. I just want to be able to bring my brain power to the table um, because I'm a really techie person. People think I'm really um, an extrovert and I'm not. (laughs) I don't mind doing the talks. I don't mind being out there, but I expend so much energy that I'm exhausted at the end. And so... I wanted to be in a space that I I can just be, you know, amazing tech person and taking care of business and, you know, creating some stuff and changing some other things and making an impact on the world. And a friend of mine said, there's some little black girl out there right now that's having a, a, a tough time. And somebody ran across your profile and showed you to her. And now she wants to do what you do. Or now she wants to follow her dream. So my tribe is one of the most important things um, to me as far as being able to keep going and getting over obstacles and adversity. Right. I remember when my advisor, my dissertation advisor, told me I wasn't really making any progress under him And come that May, he told me in February, come that May, he would no longer be my advisor and I would need to find an advisor. I was supposed to defend that December. So I was like, whoa, like, did you just do this? And he said, yes. I remember calling one of one of my mentors and um, at the time and I said, I cannot believe this happened. And she said, oh, get over it. I said, what? She said, cry about it. Take a day or two, but you need to put a plan together and it's happened to more people than you think. So she started naming all of these people, right, whose dissertations, their their advisors were either crazy (laughs) or, you know, had walked out on them (laughs) or some other, right? And I was like, what the world? And then she was like, yeah, it's a common thing. She's like, you're not the first, you won't be the last. And she was like, but you still have to, you know, come up with a plan. And so I talked to three or four people who this had happened to. She gave me some other names. I talked to them, you know, and I listened to how they recouped and how they, you know, were able to keep going. And I did the same thing. I immediately went to NASA. I started making my contacts at NASA because I was on a fellowship. And I looked around and I was trying to figure out if any of the work that I had worked on had been unpublished, was new, novel, and if it could be used if I could take any of that work that I had already done and use it toward a dissertation. And there was another man there, Preston McGill, Dr. Preston McGill. And he said, Renee, whatever it is we need to do, we'll help. And he helped me look at all the research that I had already done the very small projects. And God had ordained that because all of my projects had been with the same material. So we were able to pull together and pull my dissertation, reform my dissertation out of that. And that work is currently on the rocket that is going to go for Artemis. Wow. Right. That is amazing. So when we talk about giving up or whether you make the decision to keep going, you you really don't know where the, you know, where it's going to end up if you give up. Right. That dream is stalled or ended, but you have no idea where it's gonna go if you keep going, and the science in me always wants to know where it's gonna go if you keep going.
0: I love that. I love that. Well, that just leads me to just asking you to tell us a little bit more about what you're doing in this Artemis program. And I mean, how amazing is the work that you did for your PhD is going to land squarely on this this Artemis mission? So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about all the cool things that you're doing there.
1: What you're excited about? So last. Thursday, we did a test fire and lit all four of our engines. I'm an engine girl right now, but for me, I was in tears when it was over with when I got to the car, because I realized right then that all 11 years of my work and my career associated with NASA was on that vehicle. My dissertation is the welds that hold the tanks together and all the circular welds together. When I started working for, with NASA. I started off as a project manager and test engineer, and so we were testing the strength of the welds and their reaction to the temperatures that they were going to be operating in. And then from there, I went to become an integrator and started looking at what what it would take to integrate the engines into the engine section, and that was on paper first as a systems engineer, and then I transferred down to New Orleans to become a non-conformance engineer we dealing with the metals, right? Looking at all the metals again. And so it really didn't hit me until I was standing there, right? Watching it, feeling it, feeling it all in my stomach in that rumble that my life again had come full circle again. That God's promise had been presented to me again. Love that. Love
0: that. Just amazing. And so... Once you finished your PhD, did you think I'm heading to NASA or was it, you know, hey, I'm going to maybe try something else or what coming out of your program was NASA the all the destination that was always first at the top of your mind or were you looking at some other options coming out of your PhD?
1: NASA was my first choice. It was my, you know, my big like when I talk about going full circle, I wanted to work for NASA as an astronaut. That didn't happen because of my hearing. Dropped out of school, went back to school. It was so it so happens that my uh, master's work, not my master's work, though, my dissertation work was actually covered by a NASA, two NASA fellowships. So, so back to that full circle. Right. And so finishing was at a time they had just canceled one program. And I remember being in I was talking to one of the lawyers and he said to me. Well, let's go to the HR. And we went into HR and I remember her introducing me and the HR person said, well, if you can stick around for eight months, we'll have a job for you. Right. And I'm looking like you just put 500 engineers in the workforce here. I, I won't get a job here. And I left and went back to Louisiana. I was home with my mother for 90 days. Um, this was after a 30 day stint of being homeless because I had too much pride to go home to my mom. And then I stayed with my mom 90 days ended up getting a research and development job dealing with rope and was with them less than 90 days. And NASA called and said, we have a job for you.
0: Wow. Love it.
1: Went back after eight months.
0: (laughs) I love it. Uh, Divine uh, destiny. I just love it. It all worked together to your point. Those full circle moments. Well, again, I mean, just your passion for for STEM, and I know you have a passion and a heart to give back and really kind of nurture the next generation and really their interest in STEM. And so we know for a fact today that women make up less than 30% of the STEM workforce, and you founded an organization to address that gap. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing there? And what can we all be doing to encourage more girls and young women to pursue STEM majors and careers.
1: Unapologetically being is a not is the nonprofit, and we do advocacy work and we do mentoring. I give students direct access to me and other professionals so that they can understand that you know there are obstacles that you have to overcome. We are we are real, we are very transparent and very honest about our journeys so that these kids can understand that not all of their journeys are going to be easy. All of us have had failure. Um, All of the mentors in the program have dealt with some type of failure or, or other. I failed my qualifier and everybody knew it because we were waiting to see if I passed qualifier because the other young lady, the other black lady who came before me failed qualifiers. And that's how she was, you know, removed from the program. My girlfriend, she could not pass her qualifiers at Brown and then ended up going to Hopkins passing at Hopkins and becoming the first in her degree area at Hopkins, you know, and I could keep going down that list with those type of examples in doing that. So with these students, we work with them one-on-one. And if they are, if they look like us, we work with them on how to survive and then to thrive, right? So to go from thriving at the end, we want them to be able to thrive. We want them to do it earlier because I was in survival mode for a very long time and we don't want these students in survival mode. And then if the students don't look like us, we teach them how to be advocates. We teach them effective ways to be advocates and to be able to understand the necessity of them bringing somebody else to the table that does not look like them.
0: Love it, love it. That's awesome. Well, I know, you know, just building on top of that, I know you're an author. So tell us a little bit about some of the books that you've written and the inspiration behind them.
1: (laughs) I always kind of cringe at this question simply because the book was a joke. And it has made this huge impact now. And (laughs) it's in the school systems here in Louisiana and Mississippi. You know, I I just dropped off a set of books at the preschool for Mississippi today and I'm just always blown away. And I was telling them, they were like, "Well, do you do these readings?" And I was like, "Yeah, I just did a virtual reading with the school in uh, Indiana, Indiana uh, School District 204, and they had 1,300 logins. Wow! Into the, the the Zoom with some of the classes having kids in the class. Wow! The kids put in almost 2,000 questions in the question and answer. What? And Yeah, it was crazy. Like, I was like, I can't field all the questions. And then so another teacher was going and kind of grouping them together because they were asking pretty much the same questions because I had never answered it. So there were a lot of duplicate, but literally that's how engaged they were. And they talked to me all the way up until the the school bell rang and they had to leave. And I realized then when I was telling that story today, my true impact with this book that. I viewed as a joke to begin with. I always said I wanted to change the face of STEM. I wanted the, when kids Google scientists, that more than just a white male came up. And when I got the character, it was a joke. Cause I was like, I want an avatar. And then <laughs> I was like, no, I want a bit emoji. And my girlfriend was like, well, you could get this. My friend did me one. And then I got this character done and my son goes, that's an avatar not no big emoji. I was like, well, I have it now. And then I was putting it everywhere. The character, you know, the little science character, which is me. And that character was going everywhere. It was on one of my presentations. And somebody said to me, hey, what are you going to do with that character? Is it going to be in a book? And I stood there for a second and I said, yeah, it's going to be in a book. And then they said, well, when does the book come out? And I said, yeah, the book comes out next year. We're working on it now. And they were like, "Okay, great. And I went, wow, like I'm about to write a book. And then so I sat down and, you know, started going through the process, started working with some other folks, some more uh, educational folks and things like that to kind of figure out what we wanted to do and how we would do this. And boom, the book was born. And I released the first I was serving as president of the National Society of Black Physicists and i released the book after i came out of office because i didn't want anybody to accuse me of using the office for my gain so we held the book for 6 months the book was finished midway through my term we held the book for about 6 or 7 months and then released it the day they voted in another president they voted in my the person who was going to take over we had had 90 day crossover period but we released the book the very next day and then what happened was I would travel to places with this book and I would either teach high school kids how to do outreach with the book, or I would read to, you know, smaller kids. And then an award winning teacher from New Mexico came on board and she aligned all the rest of the books to the um, next generation science standards.
0: Wow. Amazing. That's huge. That is huge. Congratulations on that. Wow. I mean, just you're a life. It's just an inspiration. And so it's just so fitting that it's the inspiration behind your book series, right? And so t- tell us the name of the book so that my audience knows exactly how to go grab them and make sure they can get them for uh, any kids and any youth and, and as part of their, their family or network.
1: So the book is called Dr. H. Explores the Universe. The first one is from Mercury to Mars. The second one is from Jupiter to Uranus. And then we're releasing the third one this year in September, or we're shooting for September. It may come before that, but it is a visit to the moon. Um, We want to kind of align with what's actually going on. So we're going to make a visit to the moon. So Dr. H and BB will will make it to the moon before NASA does. (laughs) I'm
0: So awesome. So awesome. Well, I tell you, I mean, your your journey is just, like I said, truly inspirational and all that you continue to do and, and all that you continue to inspire others to do. So I could talk to you all day and have you unpack even more because, I mean, we've just only scratched the surface today. I know that for a fact because I know you. Anything that I didn't ask you that you want to make sure you share with the audience before we close today?
1: There's so much going on in our world today, right, with COVID and everybody got sidelined in 2020. And I just want you to know that you can manifest a different life for yourself. And I know people think I'm saying that because I'm already there, but I've already been on the other side of it. And each time that my life has come full circle, it's been about manifesting something into my life or speaking those things into my life. I am extremely big on... Believing that the energy that you put into the world is the energy that you get back. Energy is neither created or destroyed. It's just transferred. So if you are constantly putting out negative energy, then you, the field in which you are functioning in is now a negative space. And then that's where you're going to be. So I'm really big on making sure that you speak your own positivity and you speak your own future into existence. Well, that is an absolute mic drop statement. And I resonate with that wholeheartedly.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Before we wrap up, I want to enter a fun lightning round of questions. I'm going to say a word or phrase and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. And then we wrap up. Finally, I want you to tell the audience how we can get connected to you. So LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever that is. But before we do that, I want to have a little bit of fun. So what's, what's your favorite food? Food. (laughs) Uh You like anything.
1: I'm a a foodie, so I'm a serious foodie, but anything dealing with seafood. Love it. Love it. And your guilty pleasure, if you have one. Oh, um, it's uh, pecan praline ice cream.
0: Oh, that sounds amazing. (laughs) I'm with you there. Favorite book? War Room. War Room. Excellent. If you have a Netflix addiction, what might that be?
1: Anything where somebody's killing somebody. Okay. (laughs) love
0: it. (laughs) Okay. Or the, go- <laughs> gory, the gorier the better. I don't know.
1: Right? Yes, yes. I'm a um like my four-year-old grandson watches with me and we are into any of the killer series. <laughs> oh like, my god. They're gonna kill somebody today. Yes, are you ready? Yes, he goes, I'm gonna sleep with you, right? Okay. Yes.
0: <laughs> So he wants it, but he knows what happens at the end. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have, I love that. I got to sleep with you tonight because I don't know if I'm going to get this out of my head. But So to your point, I mean, hopefully COVID is coming to an end. We're getting everybody vaccinated here pretty soon. And if you could travel and take that dream vacation, where might that be?
1: Oh, baby, we're headed to Jamaica in October.
0: <laughs> oh, already planned. I love it.
1: Okay. Already
0: planned. You said that's where the fun resides. It's going to be in yeah. Jamaica. <laughs> Well, awesome. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Nate. Thank you for carving some time out of your busy schedule to stop by and talk with me and my audience, but Hey, how can we stay connected with you?
1: Hey, I'm all over social media, believe it or not. I'm pretty active. I am on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter under Renee Horton, PhD. You can also uh, find me on LinkedIn as K Renee Horton, PhD on LinkedIn. Twitter is also Renee Horton, PhD. And then the character has its own Twitter handle as well. And so- Yep. So the character is Dr. H Explores, and you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter as well. I just started TikTok, so you can tune in there. Um, It's a lot of videos of me on, on my kayak. I've just started my kayaking adventures in my bayou. So when I go out, I usually film and and put something on there. So you can even find me on TikTok. And guess what? Even on TikTok, I am Renee Horton, PhD.
0: I love it. Wow, you're such an explorer. Kayaking, (laughs) how awesome. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure. Look forward to chatting with you soon. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. For listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time,